morning, everyone. Glad you're joining with us online as well and down there in F3. Glad you could, uh, could be with us. Uh, I, I love to hear people's testimonies. Um, uh, the, the way God works in people's lives and, and then you hear that conversion story. The last uh, couple of weeks we've had some out-of-state visitors on uh, two different occasions and uh, old friends, uh, Christians, and though we talk a lot about, uh, sit around and talk a lot about what God is doing and having fellowship like that, um, eventually gets around again to how each person came to Christ, found out that um, they needed a Savior and how that story, what, how each story was woven in. Of course, I've shared before, mine's pretty boring. I was raised in a Christian home and got saved as a little kid, but my wife Lisa, she was 17. Um, and all these other people as well, that they were adults. They grew up in very, I would say, um, church-going or religious backgrounds, uh, but didn't know Jesus, had no understanding that Jesus had paid the penalty for their sin, that they could put their trust in Him freely and have that, that free gift of eternal life. And so, just sitting around and hearing those stories, uh, I think, is always so encouraging. Um, and every story is different. The, the means how to get to heaven is always the same, but the stories, how God weaves people's stories together, um, it's different. Um, conversion stories come in all shapes and sizes, as are the people that share them. And um, the passage we're going to look at this morning in Acts chapter 16 gives us three uh, conversion stories, three wonderful, diverse stories of how God moved in people's hearts. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 16 as we continue this study of the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter 16, we're going to actually start with verse 6, but just to pick up, uh, back in verse 5, um, it says, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Paul, the apostle, and his sidekick Silas were going back to the churches that had been established on Paul's first missionary journey. So they're going around and encouraging the churches and they're um, strengthening the people's faith with the Lord. And they're, they're just having, I'm sure, a great time as they're fellowshipping with people uh, in those growing churches. But then we pick up in verse 6. And it says, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, and so there's this, this is the kind of the beginning of the second missionary journey. After they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go up north into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them. And so passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, a port city of Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The ma was called a Macedonian call. Uh, Paul was a planner. I don't know if he was a type A type of person. We know in the book of Romans, I think it's chapter 16, where he was planning on going to Spain. So hey, Charlie and Sharon, there you are. Charlie and Sharon Spencer. Sorry, folks, but uh, our former children's pastors here, you're doing a wedding uh, coming up, right? Good to see you. 
Hey, give Charlie a hand. <laughs> now, where was I before I was so rudely interrupted by a children's pastor? <laughs> so, Paul, um, type A kind of a person, and he's planning on going to Asia and the north and up to Bithynia, and God keeps shutting the door, and that's the emphasis here. Clearly, over and over again, um, there's, there's a, a door not being opened. And then there's this vision of coming over to Macedonia. And so verse 6, um, verse 10 says, When we'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them also. It didn't take, I wouldn't think, a whole lot of concluding. I mean, when you've got a vision and all the other doors are shut, it's like, all right, this is where you want us to go. This is where we're going. And so they head over across the Aegean Sea. Um, and it says in verse 11, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. I want to make a quick observation. Do you notice that if you go back to um, uh, verses 6 through 10 again, or verses 6 through 9, it's in the third person um, uh, plural. They passed through the Phrygian region, verse 7, and after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and a vision appeared to Paul come over. Uh, but all of a sudden, it changes to a first-person plural, we. Uh, verse 11, so putting out to sea from Troy as we ran a straight uh, course. Luke is writing this. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is the second volume that he writes, the uh, Acts of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they pick up Luke. So the conclusion is they pick up Luke at Troas, and Luke now joins them, and so you get this uh, change. It's we now going there. And verse 12, he adds a, Luke writes with a certain specificity about Philippi. He said, we went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we stayed there many days. It's as, almost as if Luke had some familiarity with Philippi, and I think he does. Philippi was a very unique, very interesting city. Uh, it was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. Um, the Romans took over in uh, 168 B.C., but it was in 42 B.C. that really defined the city of Philippi. What happened in 42 B.C.? Well, there was a major battle that took place. Julius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, had been assassinated, and his and for those of you who don't like history, go ahead and sleep now or forever hold your snooze here. But uh, uh, Julius Caesar had been assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. And um, Mark Anthony and Octavian, they were loyal and uh, they clashed. And there was, for weeks, there was a battle that surrounded around Philippi between the forces of Mark Anthony and Octavian and the assassins of Julius Caesar, Brutus and Cassius. Well, end of the battle was that uh, Brutus and Cassius were defeated, they committed suicide, their armies dispersed, they were conquered, and Mark Anthony and Octavian and their armies were successful. Shortly thereafter, Octavian becomes the emperor of Rome. And he thinks back to this climatic and very important battle in um, Philippi, and so what he did, he pronounced on the city of Philippi 
the status of being a Roman colony. He gave them a, they, basically they became a little Rome over there in Greece. All the rights and privileges for Romans, and that's very significant. Um, Roman coinage, the Latin became the main language, uh, free of taxation. Um, th there was all sorts of benefits to being a Roman colony. They were a little Rome in Greece, and the people who grew up there, the people who lived in Philippi, were very, very proud of the fact we're Romans. Now, that's going to factor into the story here a little bit later, so hang on to that fact. But here's something else about Philippi. There was a medical school there, a medical school. And what do we know about Luke? He was a doctor. And so I have a sneaky suspicion that Luke, Philippi was either Luke's hometown or he went there for medical school because verse 12, again, he seems to know it well, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we were there for many days. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate. I'm going to read the whole chapter here from the New American Standard Version. But on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled there, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Verse 15 says, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Well, it happened, verse 16, that as we were going to that place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out and saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. He turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged him to the marketplace before the authorities. And when they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans because we're Romans, we're a Roman colony, we're a Roman outpost, we are like little Rome in Greece. Verse 22, well, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief priests tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, fasten their feet in the stocks. They're not going anywhere. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had all escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice and he said, Do yourself no harm. We're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house, and he set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen and said, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said, No way. They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are, and here it is, Romans. Paul was a Roman citizen. Silas, his psychic, was a Roman citizen. They have unjustly treated us, and we're Romans. They've thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. So the policemen reported these things, these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and they departed. I love this chapter. It's a great story. I can remember as a kid reading these stories and just being enthralled with what God was doing. Three conversion stories, three key, key persons in this story. You've got uh, Lydia, uh, the wealthy merchant woman. The text has told us she was uh, uh, a merchant woman from across the Aegean, back in the Asia area, from Thyatira, which was known, and this is interesting, it says she was a seller of purple, purple fabric. She was an astute businesswoman. A thyrotire in that region was known for its purple dyes, made from a particular fish, as I understand it, but they made these dyes and then they marketed it. And she is setting up some type of a shop or doing retail business in Philippi, smart gal, because Philippi, remember, was a Roman colony. I read, uh, oh, I was reading something a couple years ago, how um, fashion in Rome, in ancient Rome, it was, it was all the rage, especially whatever the empire, emperor's wife wore, it somehow got spread through uh, uh, the Roman Empire. And uh, so here is the retail merchant woman of the seller of purple, purple royalty, in a Roman colony, Philippi. What a great place to set up shop. And I'm sure she's making money hand over fist. She's a wealthy woman, but more importantly, it says she was a worshiper of God. Like Cornelius, probably a Gentile woman who had embraced the uh, understanding of the Old Testament, uh, the uh, Jewish God. She was a worshiper, a God-fearer, and um, very pious and religious. And uh, she and a group of other women were down at the river about a mile and a half out of Philippi on the Sabbath for a time of prayer, a time of probably reading the Old Testament scriptures. Um, now, it's also interesting that uh, we're told that it takes 10 men to have a synagogue. When Paul would do his missionary work, he would always go to a city and he would knock on the door of the synagogue. He would start there, start with the Jewish people, find the synagogue. Well, there was no synagogue in Philippi. This is a Roman colony, everything Roman. And you, you couldn't find 10 men in Philippi to start a synagogue. Uh, and so these God-fearing women were getting together uh, down by the river and they were having a time of prayer. And somehow Paul found that out and he meets there. He begins to share uh, the story of the Messiah, of Jesus. He connects the dots of the Old Testament prophecies probably. 
that Lydia and these people would have been familiar with, and it says that as he is speaking, the Lord opens her heart to respond to what Paul is saying. Paul spoke, she heard it, the Lord opens her heart to respond, she believes, she's baptized, she serves, come back to my house. Uh, This is textbook. She's been a God seeker, God worshiper. Paul comes, connects the dots, She understands now who Messiah is, that Jesus has come, fulfills all the prophecies. She believes it. She identifies with Jesus. She's baptized, which is what baptism is all about. And um, and then she serves Paul. Love it. This is is low-hanging fruit. This is easy pickings. Lydia was there. She was ripe, and she heard it, and God opened her heart to respond. You see, for Lydia, it was this... It was the power of the Word of God that brought her to salvation. The sovereign power of the Word of God proclaimed. Paul preached to her and these others. He opened up the Scriptures, but God opened her heart to respond to it, and she accepted it, believed it, was baptized, and she served. Well, the second person in this story is the slave girl, the very opposite of Lydia. Lydia is the wealthy merchant woman, the God-fearer. This is the slave girl who is demon-possessed. She has the, 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 the spirit, literally the te- in the text it says she has the spirit of Python. Now what in the world was that? Well, in the ancient Greek city of Delphi, um, there was this temple that worshiped Apollo, that Greek god, who they believed had embodied a python snake. And that spirit of Apollo uh, could enter uh, people, and the key, I guess, um, the key evidence of this uh, Apollo, satanic, it was demonic, entrance into a person was that they foretold the future. They told they were fortune tellers. That was the key. The prophet, it goes back to the prophetess of Delphi, who was a fortune teller. So this demonic spirit had entered this slave girl, and um, she was a fortune teller. And the the, the people who owned her were getting rich off her. She, she was making them a lot of money. And um, as she was, as Paul was going down to meet with these ladies in prayer and was for who knows many days, it says, um, this slave girl uh, would come along and verse 17 says she would keep following Paul and crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Pretty good marketing, right? I mean, she was spot on. These men are of the Most High God. They're bond servants of the Most High God. And they're proclaiming the way of salvation. Well, at some point, Paul said, you know, enough of this. I don't need demonic activity surrounding what I'm doing. And the text said that he's annoyed with her, with that that demonic presence. And so he, by the power of the name of Jesus... I command you, verse 18, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he cast out that demon, and she is set free. The text doesn't necessarily say that she 
was born again at that point. That's the assumption. But the masters lost their income because now she's set free. She's no longer under the control of the demon. Her fortune-telling days were over, but her life with Jesus had begun. But the masters didn't like it, didn't like it one bit. It upsets them, and though she is now set free, Paul and Silas are not, and they're taken off to prison. Um, so Lydia comes to faith because of the sovereign power of the word spoken of God. The slave girl, I think, comes to faith because of the power of the name of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, the demon is cast out. And that brings us to the third person, the third conversion story. Paul and Silas are thrown in the inner prison. The jailer puts them in there, puts their feet in stocks. They're not going anywhere. Now, this jailer, uh, interesting fellow, we, again, there's certain things we're going to assume here about him. Um, Philippi was um, settled, and it was a place of retirement for a lot of Roman soldiers. So there'd be a, this heavenly Roman uh, influence, and if you're going to retire as a Roman soldier, why not do it in Greece? Why not do it in Philippi? It's a Roman colony, and apparently, historically, we're known that, that uh, that's exactly what happened. My guess is that this jailer is a retired Roman soldier who's given this civic job, which is, again, typical of that time. And he's doing his job exactly as the Romans would want him to do it. He's got to be a tough, rough, old, salty Roman soldier. Um, certainly not a God-fearer if he even followed after the, the Greek or the Roman gods. Um, this, this is a man who um, you, you wouldn't want to keep company with. He probably wasn't a very well-liked guy. He knew how to beat people. He knew how to mess with your mind. He was one bad dude. And there was probably nothing in his life that he couldn't fix and handle until the night of the earthquake and a crisis took place and he saw that all these prisoners could be now set free and he was going to do the honorable thing he was going to kill himself that's what a roman soldier did you kill yourself and that's when paul stepped in and said do yourself no harm we're all here and in that moment of crisis he rushes in and he falls before paul and he says what must i do to be saved. How would he even know that terminology? How, how would he even know to ask that question of these guys? Well, what had Paul and Silas been doing for who knows hours? After being beaten with rods many times, thrown into the dark, deep, stinking inner prison and put in stocks, what were they doing? They were singing and praising God. They were proclaiming the goodness of God. My guess is this guy heard it. He must have scratched his head and think these guys are either lunatics or something's wrong with these people, but they're singing praises. But probably something else. Remember that demonic slave gal? You're a bondservant of the Most High God, proclaiming the way of salvation. And for many days she followed Paul and would proclaim that throughout the city. My guess again is that this jailer heard that message, probably understood exactly what 
why these two guys were thrown into prison. They had, um, they had lost the, the business of the masters because they had cast out this demon. And, but he understood that these were people who had been proclaiming the salvation of God. And in his moment of crisis, as his world comes tumbling around him, he comes and he falls down at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? And that's when Paul very simply says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe. Man, what a great opportunity it would have been for Paul at that point to say, um, okay, I, I think I kind of understand your past and, and your present. You, um, you got a long list of things you're going to have to make right. Um, it's time for you to, um, to clean up your act and then we'll talk. No, what Paul said to this man who was so undeserving and so unworthy and so vile, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, as we've heard over and over again, the triumph of the gospel, the message of the book of Acts, is that through simple faith in Christ, a person can have their sins forgiven washed white as snow and have the hope of eternal life forever and ever in heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So here you have Lydia who comes to faith because of the sovereign power of God's word. You have a slave girl who comes to faith because of the sovereign power of God's name. And here you have a Roman jailer who comes to faith because of the sovereign power of God's presence. Lydia, she had a truth encounter with the gospel. She just needed the dots connected for her, and Paul provided that. He spoke, she listened, she believed, she was baptized, and she serves. The slave girl, she had a power encounter with the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ, and the demon left. The jailer, he had a crisis encounter. This self-made man, this man who was in control of all things, found something he couldn't control. He had a crisis in his life, and God met him in that moment of crisis. So what are some implications, applications for us today in this passage? I kind of felt like I could have spent three sermons on just those stories, but um, let me summarize some things. Four things I want to share this morning. First of all, when it comes to sharing Jesus with others, don't force a door open. Let God open the door for you. I don't think Paul necessarily was forcing the door open when he wanted to go up to Bithynia and the areas of Asia. I mean, that was, he was a planner. That was kind of next on the list. He wasn't thinking of getting on a boat and crossing the Aegean and going to Greece, going to Europe. Uh, but that door was closed. And so Paul was attentive to the Lord, and the call came to go to Macedonia, and he went. And the encouragement for me, for us, I think today is, don't force a door open. Look, people's salvation doesn't depend on us. Amen. It's on God. So just follow the Holy Spirit's leading. If he opens a door to t talk with somebody, then take it, seize it. Be sensitive to it, but don't force it open. The Holy Spirit will direct us and guide us. 
So as we're going about our daily activities or in our neighborhoods or whatever, just a prayerful attitude that says, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. I'm ready to say whatever you want me to say to whomever you want me to say it. And then just trust the Lord and let him open the doors and see what happens. That's what's exciting about the Christian life. You just let him direct us. It was eight years ago, we were, um, well, a little more than that, 10 years ago, we had been burdened for um, the growing Hispanic community in our area and sensed the Lord's direction to start a church, uh, particularly focused on the Hispanic community here. Um, and so we called our friends down at South Texas that we work with, the Hispanic churches there, and down in Mexico where we work, and even in Ecuador, and we talked and started talking about, do you have someone maybe, you know, if we're going to start a Hispanic church, we're going to need a, you know, Hispanic pastor. Um, and uh, so we got connected with someone down in South Texas, and they came up, we interviewed them, and it, it just didn't seem to click. So we called again as someone else, and, and then all of a sudden, and I'll just make this story really short, but all of a sudden, um, Scott McManigal, our missions pastor, was talking with his neighbor, literally across the fence, and the neighbor happened to mention a couple that were starting a Hispanic church down in Middletown, Ben and Gabby Santa Maria. Oh, that's interesting. And he said to Scott, I think, I think you would really click with them. So Scott met them, and then we met them, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, God gives us this opportunity with Ben and Gabby Santa Maria. And for the last eight years, they have planted a church in our community here. Last year, they ordained, a year and a half ago, they ordained two elders. We're about ready to release them as an independent church, um, continue to help them a little bit financially. But that, that was a God thing. Now, we could have pushed and pushed and pushed, but when you just get back and say, okay, God, you do it. You know who is best for here. And God provided for us um, Ben and Gabby Santa Maria. I mean, over and over again, that's how God works. Don't force it. Let's just trust the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit lead us. And when he leads and opens that door, then let's open our mouth and share the good news. Second application. The gospel knows no boundaries. God's grace is for anyone. And certainly Acts 16 shows that. I think Acts 16 is a great example of uh, this passage in Galatians chapter 3. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is just saying God knows no boundaries. The power of the gospel crosses every line imaginable every boundary imaginable. You are all one in Christ because of faith in Jesus Christ. No one is beyond the reach of the good news of Jesus Christ. No one. And we can look at people and think, those people, they're unreachable. I mean, there's no way on God's green earth those people would ever care to hear the gospel. I mean, Lydia is kind of the most likely candidate here. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. She was a God worshiper. She was ready. She was, that was, you know, like I said, low-hanging fruit. I mean, she was teed up, ready to go. A slave girl who was a demoniac, or an old ex-Roman soldier who was vile man, a jailer. Now, don't ask me to go there. Don't ask me to even talk with those people. 
they've got to be unreachable. You know that pesky neighbor, that godless coworker or boss, that um, um, that that vile, foul-mouthed, good-for-nothing secular humanist. <laughs> That evolutionary biology teacher who has no interest in something supernatural or spiritual? Oh no. God loves to surprise us. I've told this story, I know, sometime in the past 33 years I've been here. When I was a freshman at the University of Nebraska, history student, um, the, what, the, the introductory history class that all freshmen took, uh, kind of a world history general class, was taught by a, a guy by the name of Dr. Nels Ferdy. He was a Norwegian guy who, his father had been, a, uh, was a um, Norwegian Lutheran pastor from Minnesota. And, uh, but Nels Ferdy wanted nothing to do with God. And he said, and I heard him with my own ears, he said, some of you are Christians here in this class. And he said, my goal in this um, year, it was a two semester class, my goal this year is to destroy your faith. I'm going to show you, uh, and he just—he was, was just a secularist. He was just a—he was a godless man. And he proved that he really was sitting in that class. I had actually another class from him, and he was the same old Nels Ferdy. I went down to seminary, and a couple years later, I was back in Lincoln and was visiting with some friends, and they were chatting with me. And they said, "Hey, by the way, did you know that Dr. Ferdy became a Christian?" I said, no way. Something that can't be. Dr. Ferdy? Yeah. He got saved. I said, how'd that happen? And they told the story how uh, his wife uh, got deathly sick with cancer, terminal apparently, and some students from the university in some of the student groups got together and they met with him and it says, Dr. Ferdy, you don't deserve this, but we're going to pray that your wife gets healed so that you know there's a God in heaven. And she did. And he accepted Jesus as his savior. And he would start his classes after that. Um, I know a lot of you are Christians and a lot of you aren't Christians in this class. But my goal this year is to help you realize that there is a God in heaven and he's unfolding his eternal plan of the ages in a world history. <laughs> Isn't that something? God can do great things. There is no one unreachable. And the fact of the matter is, the other side of that coin is, in one sense, we were all unreachable. We were all born into sin. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We're born in sin. And apart from some divine intervention, God opening our heart like he did with Lydia of old to respond to the gospel. There's no hope for us. It is the power of the gospel. And so Paul would say this in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is powerful. And through the connection with the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and he opens a heart to accept it and believe it, the most unreachable people, you and me, <laughs> the most unreachable people can come to faith in Jesus Christ because of his divine work and intervention in our life. Nobody is unreachable. So keep praying for that person, that neighbor, that 
good-for-nothing co-worker, that uh, evolutionary biology teacher, that whoever that vile person might be, um, keep praying, and let's see what God's going to do. Here's the third thing. Got to keep moving here. A life well lived, especially when suffering, is one of the greatest evangelistic tools we have to influence someone for Christ. A life well lived, especially in the midst of suffering. What was Paul and Silas doing? Singing praises to God while they were in prison, in the inner prison, singing and praising to God. And it said the prisoners were listening, and so was that jailer. They heard the praises. They saw the power of a changed life. So why Paul would write in his uh, book uh, to the Philippian church, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Well, it does us a lot of good, but there's going to be a lot of people listening. A life well lived. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It is believers in Jesus Christ who are living in the power of the Holy Spirit who are savory in this world, who take this dead, decaying, rottenness world and bring flavor to it that enlighten the darkness of the world by our life. Let our light so shine before men that they'll see our good works and glorify God who is in heaven. A, a life well lived, and especially in suffering. Because we of all people, if you know Christ as your Savior, we should have the proper perspective. God causes all things to work together for good. Yes, there's a lot of bad things that happen in this world. Suffering can be, the trials and tribulations of life can be overwhelming at times. But God is the good shepherd. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil for he is with us. He walks with us. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And as we are totally convinced of his love and his heart for us, no matter what we go through, we can have a song in our heart. We can sing praises to the Lord. There's nothing like the power of praise that'll turn heads of an unsaved world because they don't have it. And they'll be wondering, what in the world makes you tick? That's what the Philippian jailer was wondering to Saul, to, Sil to Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Isaac Watts, 300 years ago, wrote these verses he said, so let our lips and lives express the holy gospel we profess. So let our works and virtues shine to prove the doctrine all divine. Thus shall we best proclaim abroad the honors of our Savior God when his salvation reigns within and grace subdues the power of sin. A life well lived, it speaks volumes to a lost world. Let me wrap up with this fourth one. The greatest motivation to advance the gospel in the world today is remembering the gospel's impact in our own life. The greatest motivation to share the good news with someone else is when we remember the power that good news has changed us. Um, I mentioned earlier, I became a Christian when I was just a kid. Grew up in a Christian home, and I'm forever grateful that that took place. I didn't go through some of the muck and mire that other people have gone through. But you know what? I was worthy of hell. I was a sinner. I was born into sin. And apart from God's divine grace in my life, I'd be there today. I needed Jesus. 
I needed Jesus. Um, it's His grace. And when we're captured by His grace, and when we proclaim to ourselves the gospel every day, when we are reminded of His everlasting, powerful love and mercy that was bestowed on us, you know, we can forget that. We can just go through life and, you know, I've been doing this Christian thing for a good night, over 60 years. And you can just kind of start going through the motions. And we forget sometimes the, the grandeur, the amazing grace that saved a wretch like, take a look in the mirror, folks, like you and me. Not a person in this room is worthy of going to heaven. Not a person in this world deserves to get to heaven. You can do all the good works you want to do, and you'll end up at eternity in hell. That's on the authority of God's Word. And what's the difference? God opens our heart to respond, and the gospel is shared, and we receive a free gift of eternal life. Don't ever lose sight of the glory of your salvation. Because when you're captured by that, you can't help but tell someone else about it, of how God saved you. I think these first believers in the city of Philippi understood that. Even the Lydia, who had the, the dots connected for her, um, the slave girl, oh my goodness, what she was saved from, the Philippian jailer, what he was saved from, why I think that was so impactful is because when Paul wrote his letter to the Philippian church, he said this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, those early believers, that Philippian jailer, that demonic slave girl that was set free, Lydia and all the households that came together, what a diverse group of people to come together as a, as a, as a family of God in Philippi. They never lost sight of the wonderful grace of God in their life. And they proclaimed the gospel from the first day, Paul said, you participated in the gospel from that very first day on. They were captivated by the love and grace of God. You know, we live in a world, in a city, it's no different than Philippi. There's religious people here who haven't connected the dots yet, who don't know Jesus personally, very religious, but they don't know Jesus. There's demonic influences going on and people captured by the, the, by the deception of the evil one, the God of this world who's the father of lies. It's all around us. There are, there are vile, old, self um, centered uh, Roman jailers, probably in our midst all around. No, our city, our area is no different than ancient Philippi. That re religious person like Lydia needed Jesus. That demonic person held in the clutches of Satan, they need Jesus. That self-made person who think they don't need a God, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. And you might be here today, and if you haven't put your trust in him and him alone, I'm telling you, you need Jesus. Because the only way to heaven, the only way to have your sins forgiven is through the power of Jesus Christ. I invite you to put your trust in him and him alone. 
That's the triumph of the gospel. That's the story of Acts. Let's pray. Our Father, how kind of you to give us this written record of your amazing grace, what you did in the lives of these people, to package it all here in one chapter, um, and to show your hand at work, closing the door to Bithynia and parts of Asia, opening the door to Macedonia and the city of Philippi, using people who were willing to praise your name even in the most horrible situations, to trust you knowing that your hand was leading them, and then to see you open the hearts of people. Um, Father, um, thank you for doing that for us. If there's anyone here today, Father, who's never put their trust in you, I pray that you would open their heart right now to put their trust in Christ alone. And then, Father, use us. Use us in our Philippi, in our area. Use us to proclaim the good news of a Savior who sets us free. In Jesus' name, amen.